I pretty much say I think everybody's got three themes that they go around and around in in their lives. Mine were I'm unlovable, I'm not, I'm worthless, and the little match girl theme, which is standing out in the cold with no shoes on and rags, looking at in the snow, looking at the family on the other side of the picture window, cooking turkey in the little velvet dresses and hugging and kissing and loving each other. And I'm the one always. And what the theme still comes up. Something can easily trigger that. Where I don't belong, where I'm on the other side of the warm, I call it. Janine Roth has had a voice in her head from the earliest possible days that she can remember. But here's the thing. She is not suffering from some diagnosable condition. It's the same voice that many of us have. Maybe we call it by a different name. It's the voice of shame and blame. It's the voice of not fitting in. It's the voice of difference. It's the voice of destruction. It's the voice of not enough. And that led to an extraordinarily dark place for the better part of two decades in her life until she had a moment of reckoning that changed everything. She since has become really a leading voice, a luminary in the world of understanding the relationship between self-worth, value, living an extraordinary life, and food. But it's not just food. It's really a much bigger conversation. In her new book, This Messy, Magnificent Life, she dives deep into a recent struggle and she kind of asks the question, okay, I have done all this work. I've spent 30 years exploring my relationship to the world, to food, to self-worth. I've been in therapy. I've done every spiritual practice in the world. And yet there's still this nagging thing in me that says I don't fit in and something is not quite right. What do I do about that? And that is where our conversation goes in today's episode. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I think a lot of people feel like this in their families, that I didn't quite belong there, Mm. that somehow I landed, and who were these crazy adults? In what way? 
Oh, boy, because I was always interested in the depth stuff, feelings and saying what I saw. And that's not how life was back then. And so in that way, I felt like I didn't belong. I, you know, I kept on wanting my parents to talk to each other and, you know, talk about their unhappiness and see what we could work out. And I didn't want them to get separated and divorced and all of that. So I I saw what was going on, but nobody really wanted to talk about it. And I think what happened for myself is that I, in the process, I didn't feel very lovable. I didn't, I didn't really feel, I took it very personally. If there was all this pain out there, it must be that something's wrong with me. I must be the problem. If only I were different, then somehow I could either make them happy or they would be different if I was a different kid. And I funneled all that through my relationship with food. And so what happened quickly by the time I was 11 when I went on my first diet, I felt that if only I could lose weight, look differently, eat differently, be gorgeous, sort of be a different person than I was, then everything would be fine. And I believed it. I mean, I really believed it. So I developed a severe eating disorder that lasted 18, 17 years. When you look back at that that first moment, I mean, reflecting back on it, it's, it's easier to see a lot of what happened and understand what was happening. Were you aware at all when you were sort of, quote, in it, in your teens and then through into your 20s? Was there a moment where you had a sense of the fact that this isn't okay, this is something really off here, rather than I'm just trying to fix something, I'm going to keep trying stuff, and it's all going to be related around food and the way that I relate to it? I had not one moment like that, like you asked. It was all about food and the size of my body. I I became obsessed. And did I know something was off? Yes, but I but what I thought what was off was my lack of willpower and my inherent madness that was manifesting through my relationship with food, but somehow I believed that if I could fix that, everything else would be fixed too. That's what I believed. It became just so unifocused. And and I was convinced of that. And then if so then I went on so many diets, but when I stopped eventually, because it was torturous, it was really, really torturous the way I gained and lost weight for all of those years. And when I stopped doing the whole thing, it's like I stepped out of the paradigm. I stepped out of the diet binge, fix yourself paradigm. And when I stepped out of that, there was such freedom in stepping out of it. It was frightening on the one hand, but so freeing on the other hand that I realized I was never going to go back. What happened that led you to step out of it? I read a book called Fat is a Feminist Issue. Were you looking for that book? I was looking in the bookstore for ways to kill myself. That was before the internet. And I was at the breaking point of realizing I never, I couldn't do this anymore. I'd been anorexic for a year and a half, then I had doubled my weight in two months. And I realized I, if life meant this, then I didn't want to participate. I wanted out. And so I had decided to kill myself and was looking uh, for books on guns and drugs and things like that. And I saw sitting on the floor of the bookstore, the book depot in Mill Valley, and I saw this book and I picked it up and I started realizing that maybe there was something much deeper about what I was doing with food than what was apparent. And that that and I decided to take a couple of weeks because at that point I had nothing to lose. I was willing to lose my life and see if it were true. And and so the very next day, I stopped dieting and I went on a whole different path, which I'm still on really. And I mean, it's no longer about food, but it is about stepping out of the fix me paradigm 
there's something wrong with me. And if only I could fix this and fix that and fix this, I'd be fine. Yeah. Tell me more about, about that, about that paradigm. Yeah. I, I think I spent so long feeling like I was the wrong person to be leave, living my life. That if only I were different, more of this and less of this. And when the whole relationship with food, I, w- I you know, this is not going to sound the way it was. I was going to say was healed because really it was a process just like anything is. When I was no longer obsessed with food or the size of my body, when it wasn't an issue for me anymore, which believe me, I never thought there'd come a day when that would happen. But it's been a long time since that's been true. I realized that whatever deeply fueled that, which was a sense of being damaged or doomed or too selfish, worthless, unlovable, not belonging. I mean, I I pretty much say I think everybody's got three themes that they go around and around in in their lives. Mine were I'm unlovable, I'm not I'm worthless, and the little match girl theme, which is standing out in the cold with no shoes on and rags, looking at in the snow, looking at the family on the other side of the picture window, cooking turkey in the little velvet dresses and hugging and kissing and loving each other. And I'm the one always. And what the theme still comes up. Something can easily trigger that where I don't belong, where I'm on the other side of the warm, I call it. It's over there, but for some reason, either because I'm damaged or doomed or something's wrong with me, I didn't get the right piece of DNA, I'm never going to be part of that circle of warm. And I realized that was still true, that that though my eating was fine and my body was at its natural weight, I still felt like that. And so I wanted to see if it was possible to attend to that directly, since I was no longer manifesting that through my relationship with food. And, you know, I'm happily married. I've been with my husband now for a while. Um, I have work that I love. I'm living somewhere that I love. And still, I woke up like this every day. So uh, in a in a low-level way, not screaming with it, not obsessed by it, but sort of feeling something was tugging at my heart, haunted, I would say haunted by that. And I I really wanted to see if it was possible to not live like that every day, to not even, you know, have that as a low-level theme or not that I would never be triggered, but that I could stop believing it when it did get triggered. Because I don't think things go away like that, especially things that are inscribed in your history and your legacy, your ancestry, you know, all that you inherit. You inherit, and there's no way to disinherit it. But there is a way to be in relationship with it, and which I was never able to do, despite 30 years of meditation and just as many years of therapy. I kept waiting to be fixed. I I felt like in the back of my mind, I kept waiting for somebody to save me and rescue me like I was a kid waiting for a different mom to come. So anyway, that's what got me working on this book is that, well, I wouldn't say that's not what started me working on the book. It started the process that eventually became the book because after a couple of years of that, and writing pieces, which I had no idea were going to become a book or not, I thought, oh, I'm writing about something here. I'm writing about this that I am attending to, and I'm following certain methods in a way. And so this seems like, and I wanted to write about it, of course, because I always want to write about what's this and what's happening and Isn't it amazing? And because I don't often know what I know until I write about it, I wanted to write about it. And then eventually it became a book. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I mean, it's interesting to me also that the thing that you seem to be describing, being on the outside looking in, 
You know, you can, there's all sorts of stuff, which is good, which is great. And yet still there is this low level of, no, I, there's, it's a lack of belonging. Yeah. And, and you have a person who you love and who you've loved for decades. And I'm sure you have friends who feel this way. And still there's this thing. And, and as you shared earlier, you, you know, you can trace that back to at the earliest stage, you feeling like you didn't even belong to your own family. And 30 years of therapy, 30 years of meditation, all this stuff, it's still there. Yes. Right. It is. What do you do with that? And so here's what I've come to see. I've come to discover certain ways to work with myself when those things come up. And those are the very things I teach, too, in my retreats, because... Why not teach what you need to learn and what you have learned? And because I think I think it's universal. I do think it's universal. I think to some degree, everybody's got a little bit of it. I think the hard part, at least for me, was I thought it was possible to dissolve those things. I thought that meditation was going to help me develop that sky mind. Mm. As I learned in perfect Dzogchen. equanimity. <laughs> yes, perfect equanimity. Be able to watch those thoughts go by and not get involved or attached to them. And I thought therapy was going to heal those very, very wounded places. And believe me, I tried a lot of different therapy, most of which was really good. Some of it wasn't so good, but most of it was very good. But still, I thought those things were going to go away, that I was, you know, I guess I thought I was going to wake up someday having had a different childhood. I mean, if I had to say it like that, of course, I didn't think that, but I think I thought I'd get a different nervous system, that I would go into parasympathetic mode much easier than I do, that I wouldn't get triggered as easily as I do. And I don't get triggered as easily except when I do. And then it's, okay, then what? And and so the big myth for me was that those things were going to go away mm. and that I was going to be a different person than I am. I know that sounds so silly, but I think I thought that. I thought I was going to be healed in a different way than I feel healed now. Hmm. I mean, that actually makes a lot of sense. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. 
If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I'm often kind of fascinated by the distinction between becoming or transformation and liberation. And I feel like I'm curious what you, whether you've seen this too with, with so much of the work that you've done that there's there is so much focus of transformation, which is, you know, to me, it's like, okay, so you're starting as A and, and you're transforming into B rather than liberation, which is, you know, the truest sense of who you are is there. It's always been there yeah. and there's goodness in it. And the process isn't so much changing from A to B. The process is peeling away that which restricts you from yeah. being that truest part of who you are. I love that. Yes, I love that. I think you just said it beautifully because I think that's actually what it is. I I think when I dropped the me project, as I called it, it was dropping it and accepting the fact that certain things were just not going to get fixed. They weren't. So they weren't going to be part of that becoming process that you're talking about. But there was this huge open space that had never been broken. And that as long as I was involved in the me project, I was involved in the fixing and being disappointed and thinking I could become a different person and thinking that this was going to change and I was going to have a parasympathetic nervous system, sort of like my husband, who's just glides in a much easier way through life than I do, just always has, always will. It's always astonishing to me. Sometimes I think he's in denial and repression. Like, <laughs> no, you don't get it. How could it be anything else? <laughs> <laughs> the world is caving in. Exactly. Come on, get upset. <laughs> Look at the dark side, for God's sakes. Oh, uh, uh, you know. Can't you just complain once? <laughs> But what started happening was that I realized, you know, through how I started working with myself in a different way, in the dropping the me project way, that there was always what you called it, this place that was always there. And that I didn't, well, one thing was I never thought that was for me. So People talked about that, of course, in the meditation retreats. Right, it's and the heartbeat of yoga. Yes, I mean, stuff, it's everything, yeah. but it felt like a step-by-step process. Do this, and then do this, and there was a hierarchy, and then you do this, and then you get enlightened. You know, you're there. And what I don't think, and and because that whole thing, that whole paradigm, just really was part of, but I can't do it but I don't belong, but I'm always on the outside. It just hooked right into that. So I felt like that. that, That's good for them. Yeah, good for them, but that's not possible for me. They don't understand. I'm doomed. And then I started realizing what you said and what I realized too about 
the not brokenness. There was a part, not just a part, but a, a sort of an essence, an essential nature. I don't want to sound too, quote, spiritual here about this, because I don't, I believe this is true for everybody. So I don't want to make it sound esoteric in any way, but that the not brokenness was, is always there. And so it's about seeing myself as that, not taking, this is going to sound much easier than it actually is, not taking it personally when all of those triggers get triggered and I get reactive being with it, being sweet and kind to the reactivity, not judging and shaming myself because, oh my God, I can't believe this is still coming up after all these years. What is the matter with me? You know, that, I call that the crazy ant in the attic voice. But when it comes up to say, oh, sweetheart, I get it. I, you know, I, yes. And to see that what is noticing it is bigger than it, what's noticed. And so. All right. I have to stop you there because that is so important. Yeah. The, that awareness. Yes. Like that, that meta awareness. Yes. I, isn't that kind of the master key? That's the master key. That's the master key. How do we get it? Well, I think the reason we don't get it is because we make it much more complicated than it is. I think that's why we don't get it. Because, because of what I said before, all of our stuff comes up. I can't do it. It's not. But, 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 you know, I'll get there when. You know, when I would tell people with my first few books, you know what? Stop dieting. Stop depriving yourself. Listen to your body. Eat what your body wants. They'd say to me, and this is the answer to the question you just asked, let me lose weight first on a diet, then I will do that. Because they were afraid, like most of us are, when we hear that that which is noticing isn't what is being noticed. And so... If we notice it, then there's an awareness there that's noticing it, that's big, that's always in the background all the time, that that's actually who we are. But I was told that so many times before I believed it. I was like my students who were, but, 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 but let me do this first and let me, let, let me accomplish this first. And then, because I think when we hear that, we hear it as, relaxing, or we hear that as too easy, or we hear that as almost unbelievable. Right. It's just like too trippy. Yeah. Like there's another me there. Right. That's like looking down on me and observing, you know, like what right. I'm thinking and doing. Right. right. It's like, whoa. But then you think, well, on the other hand, what is being aware that I'm sitting here right now with you? How do I know that? Well, I know that, first of all, because I can feel my feet on the floor, my butt in the chair, my back in the chair, but also because there's an awareness that's aware of that. And, and so, and like, it's the most obvious thing. It's almost like a conspiracy that we're, we're not noticing the most obvious thing there is. Yeah. I mean, and if you... It's actually, it's so interesting, right? Because it seems so trippy on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's actually really easily validatable yes. because the moment you catch yourself thinking this, spinning this story, you know, like doing the, the moment you catch yourself with anything, like, oh, I was just thinking this. I was just, you know, like telling that story again. I've told like the you that's catching yourself. Like if there isn't this dynamic, if there isn't this ability to be aware of your thoughts, whatever like consciousness is becoming aware of it, you wouldn't be able to do that. Right. You would be a hundred percent in your thoughts and in the stories all right. the time. So the simple fact that we catch ourselves all the time, if we sort of practice becoming aware of all the maniacal stuff, the crazy ant as you <laughs> describe it in, in the head, it's like proof. Like you don't have to just take it on faith. 
No. The fact that you can catch yourself telling these stories, chastising yourself, spitting all this stuff, the fact that you become aware of that, you can't become aware of that unless there is that observer in some way, shape, or form. And that is the liberation. Yeah. It's none other than that. That's it. That's it. It's that easy. It's that easy. Well, <laughs> And that hard. Though. And that yeah. hard. Because, number one, there's the doubt that, what? It's that easy? Really? Well, if it's that easy, how come everybody isn't doing it? Well, part of the answer is because we all think it's much harder than that. But the other thing is catching yourself is is not the easiest thing either because we're so wedded to our opinions and our reactions and our thoughts, and we think that because we think it, it's true. And so there's got to be what we're talking about right now in the background. Really? You think that? Is, is that really what's going on? Like if somebody doesn't answer an email from me, I can read so much into it, or a text is worse because right. the text is supposed to right. be. You've got five minutes to get back to me, or yeah. else like, I've done something horrible. Yes, or, yeah. right. They don't like me anymore. Oh my God, maybe it's what I said last week or the week before. The amount of story that goes in between the fact, the situation, and the thing I don't know, I have no idea what that, what the reason is, but I make up the stories and then I become wedded to the stories. And so unless there's a part of me that we're talking about that's looking and seeing, honey, you're making up a story right now. Here's the fact. Your text wasn't answered. That's all you know, Period. Now what? Life becomes much less dramatic. It becomes simpler. Less dramatic for me, I was a real drama queen. I really got a lot of juice out of drama and... <laughs> and Well, I mean, there is the New Yorker in you still. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so, yeah, I got into it. Oh my God, you wouldn't believe what happened. And then when I talk about what happened in that way with the drama, it's not just what happened. It's my interpretation of what happened that gets fused together. And so what you're talking about when you say to be aware of the fact that you're thinking that's really a different story because then it takes me being aware that a story that I recount to you about the person who didn't answer my text, that's the simplest thing or some other event that's happening. When I tell you what's happened, it's always infused with my interpretation of what happened. And unless I'm willing to separate those two, I'm sunk. I'm really sunk because I'm wedded to my story there. I'm wedded to my opinions. I'm wedded to my interpretations. And what you're talking about and what we're talking about is the awareness that isn't, that just simply notices. Which is, I mean, it, it's it's so interesting because the the way you're sort of framing this, you're, it kind of makes it obvious that, because I've always wondered this too, why don't people do practices that help them step into a state of sort of awareness or presence. And it actually makes sense that, you know, we build our lives, we build our worldviews around not just circumstance, but the stories that we attach them. And then we get attached to those, like the blended experience as our identities and, yeah. and as the world around us. And it's almost like saying, okay, so let me step back and develop these practices or that would somehow allow me to keep zooming the lens out. It requires a certain amount of willingness to let go of that worldview, like the the model of the world that you know, this, the, the nature of the stories that you tell and the way that you expect things to unfold, to just kind of say, huh, what's actually happening here? It's almost like a grieving of that that has to happen in order just to pull back into awareness. Yes, and I'm going to add an and here. I think also, at least for me, because I was so wedded to my identity, I would say really my identity as the wounded one, the one who didn't have, the one who didn't belong, the one who was damaged. So there was a whole identity around that. 
I didn't realize there was something better. I think in terms of, I'd say for me, rather than grieving, there was fear. There was fear of, well, what would be there? If Who I, am I if I'm not this? Yes, yeah. because my whole identity was constructed around that. And so I think for me, I stepped into it baby step by baby step. I had all these great spiritual teachings, which I didn't really believe, but something in me did because I kept going back. I kept being drawn. I kept feeling like, you know, there's something that's possible here from life on earth. And I know it's possible, and all these people are saying it's possible. It's not my direct experience. How can it be my direct experience? So I started doing little things every day that brought me that experience and that I committed to doing. Like what, for example? I wake up in the morning. And, you know, where I would usually do what a friend of mine says he does, something's wrong and who's to blame, was his, is his first thought every day. <laughs> and that was my thought, too. I'm thinking that's most of my friends, actually. <laughs> right, right. Something's wrong and who's to blame. I wake up now, and, and this is an effort. So everything I'm about to say, there are little teeny things, but they're big efforts because I'm so drawn, magnetized the other way. I will ask myself in the morning, first I'll sense myself and I'll notice, oh, I woke up. I didn't die during the night. That's a good thing. Then I will ask myself, what's not wrong right now? What's not wrong? Because something's wrong and who's to blame magnetizes me the other way and has me searching for negativity. After a while, it had me looking for it. What's not wrong right now? is the exact opposite. It gets me in the present moment and it gets my attention because you become what you pay attention to. So it gets my attention to, oh, I can see, I can breathe. Or uh, even if I'm looking at a chandelier in the room that I wake up in, oh, look at that. There's a light fixture there, which I would ordinarily have not noticed at all because I'm so engaged in my mind that it glazes my view onto everything. And so I don't usually see what's there or what one of the Tibetan teachers I had said, be like a child astonished at everything. And so I wasn't astonished at anything after a while. And it was just, yeah, there's that and there's that. And even when I tried to keep a gratitude journal, which I wasn't very good at, I have to say, it's like just a checklist. Yeah, right. I did this today. This was lovely. I saw this. You know, this happened. Check, 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 check. But I didn't experience it, really make an effort to take it in and to experience it intensely. And unless I do that in the morning, I mean, I can also say, okay, so what's not wrong? Okay, good, I woke up, I didn't die in the night, I have arms, I have legs, isn't it great? Poof, get out of bed. I know that if, it, if it's gonna change, it's like a compass. It orients me in a particular direction. And if I'm gonna be oriented in that moment, in a different direction than my usual marriage to negativity. Recently, I said to my husband, you know, I know it seems like we've been married for a long time, but really, I think I've really been married to negativity this entire time. <laughs> it's like, I've been cheating on you, but not the way you think. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so if I'm going to change that, then it takes some effort. It does, but not that long, 15 seconds. I mean, that's not long, but still, it's 15 seconds that I that you have to do. And, and then I'm aware of what I called about the crazy ant in the attic all the time. That voice never shows up. I did it wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I'm a failure. I could have done it differently. And I also have realized that voice is never going to shut up. I thought for a while I could get rid of that voice, never going to shut up. And so now... It's just realizing it, she's in the attic or it's in the attic, he's in the attic, whatever it is, and to disengage because it doesn't matter to me if I'm three floors down and it's continuing to shout the entire time, eh, 
It's like having a radio on somewhere in the house, but I can't hear it. So it's that, and that's an ongoing practice too, because when I'm skipping along in a day and I suddenly feel terrible and I don't know what happened because I had an interaction, but it didn't seem so bad and, or I read something and I don't realize I'm comparing myself to somebody else. And I suddenly feel like I've been cut off at the knees and I feel really small and collapsed and I don't, and, and, and then I feel doomed and then the whole process starts again. Now I'll track back and ask myself, what happened and what am I saying to myself now? Yeah. So it becomes just sort of like almost like an automatic prompt over time. Yeah, it does. And that's a small practice. It's a big practice. But it's a small practice because it just requires tracking back and questioning using that awareness we're talking about. It's the type of thing where it's not complicated, but it's hard. That's right. (laughs) Right. And it works, you know, but, but it also very often, I mean, it works on the level of an intervention in the moment, but my sense is, I'm so curious whether this has been your experience too. Yes, it'll work for a moment, but then you snap back pretty quickly. (laughs) And it's, it's the practice of of making it a practice. It's the process of saying, okay, I'm going to do this every morning. And then I'm going to try and catch myself a whole bunch of times throughout the day and just ask myself these questions, do a check that over time, like starts to lean more towards persistent state, if that's even something which is possible. Yeah. I think what happens is that I, what happens is that I forget less and less of the time and remember more and more of the time. And then when I forget, the periods of time in which forgetting is happening become shorter. You know, the other thing I wanted to say, Jonathan, is the other practice that I started two years ago is to stop complaining. And I can't tell you how extraordinary this is. And by the way, I don't always succeed at it. Sometimes I'll ask a friend, you know, is whining complaining? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I, I need a call here. Like, how close to the line am I? Because I don't want to break my commitment to myself, but I would like to whine a little bit right now. But most of the time, I won't let myself complain. And it. I started it because I realized that most of my conversations with people were an exchange of complaints. Even my dearest friends were... And it it were complaints and complaints about, you know, everything, what Ram Dass calls the organ recital. So here's what my knee is aching and my back is aching. And so there's the organ recital. And then complaints about what somebody said or did or what's not going the way I would like it to go and how somebody is, quote, misbehaving and, you know, and the government and politics. and, And there's a lot to complain about there. And still, I realized that complaining was running in place. It's not like it was doing anything. It's not like it was helping me act. It made me feel like I was doing something because I got to emote and complain, but it left me in exactly the same place as I was before I started complaining. So I made a decision to stop radical to the point where my husband asked me after the first couple of weeks if I had the flu because he was so not used to me not complaining he it was like did what happened to the person I married did somebody's body come and it was who are you and and that made me realize really how much I had been complaining because it was really an abrupt shift and so that has continued most of the time, I would say, most of the time. How, how do you distinguish between complaining and you brought up the, I think sometimes we view voicing complaints as action, yes. right? And But there is, a, at least in my mind, you know, because I look at, okay, so there's a lot of stuff that's happening out in the world today. A lot of us would love to see changed and a lot of that change won't happen without people standing up and voicing this isn't right. And then taking action to rise up and to make things happen, whatever that thing is that, you know, is meaningful to you. And I think a lot of times, I think what what you're saying, if I'm hearing it right, is there's a difference between saying, this sucks, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. And feeling like 
that is your action versus acknowledging this is not the way that I would prefer it to be. And whether you voice it or not, then figuring it, the next question is, what action can I take to invest myself in having it be different? And then just taking that action. Yes, I think that's the big difference. And for me about certain things, like what's happening right now in the country with the government, and but I, I realized it was getting so painful to me that I stopped reading the news. And then I realized, wait, that's not going to, that's not how anything is going to change. And so I started reading it again and then really letting myself feel the sorrow that I felt about it, really feeling the pain of it in my heart, which I didn't want to feel. I was avoiding that. I just didn't want to feel it. And so I would complain about it, but that was on an upper register than really letting myself really feel what it felt like. And then from that place, okay, what do I want to do? How do I act in a way that doesn't create more war? And more animosity, because what I found out with myself, that when I warred against different parts of myself, when I made different parts of myself bad or wrong, it didn't change them. It was only when I was able to be in relationship to them and then, and then decide, what, what did I want to do? You know, for instance, I'll use the, I'll use weight again as a metaphor here. You know, some people can make themselves wrong about gaining weight and shame and deprive themselves. That doesn't lead to change that, and they can complain about it. And a lot of people do, but you never get to ask yourself, okay, well, what am I doing here that I could be doing differently? What exactly am I feeling about what I'm doing. You don't get to those deeper registers when there's major complaints going on. And what I have found is that if I allow myself to really feel what I feel, and most people are scared to feel what they feel. They're afraid it will break them apart. They're afraid it will be overwhelming. Most of us haven't been taught that feelings don't kill us. Most of us don't know that it's possible to, when you feel sad, to ask yourself, oh, where is that sadness? In my heart, in my belly, in my throat? Does it have pressure? And because it's not the sadness, it's a story you're telling yourself about the sadness that's so harmful. So what I do now is I just let myself feel it which isn't always easy, and I don't always want to do it. And then when I don't do it, I just binge watch TV series. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't want to. Okay, then. But when I do, it becomes much more apparent to me the action that I want to take. Do I want to get involved in a community organizing that's happening? Is there a particular um organization that I want to be part of, that I want to contribute to either with money or time. So it becomes where I start asking myself questions that I can answer while being in alignment with myself rather than being against it. I'm against it. I'm against it. Because I feel like when I start do anything with the I'm against it, then I became I become one of them. I became I become one of the problem people by being against it. And so I've, it's it's never helped me to be against something. It's more to be for, to be very clear and aligned with what I'm for and to keep that right in front of me and go for that. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The 
all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I spent a chunk of time studying actually nonviolent revolution theory. And there's a guy who actually just passed recently named Gene Sharp, who literally wrote a expanded pamphlet that became the operating manual for nearly every nonviolent revolution around the world in the last few decades. Part of what he wrote, it's really interesting. This is the macro version of what you're saying on a personal level. He said, most people will go in and say, okay, like we're being oppressed. Here is the dictator or the regime that's oppressing us. Our goal is to take them down. And then they would take them down, but still they didn't feel better. And the change they sought wasn't happening. And he said, the more effective, and or if they made all of this effort and things changed, but that, you know, that source that everyone was focusing on, like this must be taken down, still remained, even just a name, it was viewed as a success, as a failure. And you viewed yourself as a failure rather than saying, here are the beliefs, the values, here are the pillars of power that are propping this thing up currently. What do we believe about what matters, about what is better? What does better look like? Let's create that so that those pillars of power will slowly say, why am I still here? And move over to you. And that thing kind of disintegrates on its own. And whether it does or doesn't, doesn't entirely matter yes, to you. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And this is like, this is the personal representation of that, like sort of like macro approach. Yes. Right. And, you know, I feel that too about what's going on right now, because of course there's a big, fabulous, badly needed women, yeah. me too, times up, which is so great that that's happening In my mind, there's also an inner level of that, which is just speaking from direct experience and then and from the women that I work with and the people that I work with, and now I'm speaking for the women I work with, that many of us have internalized and treat our own bodies the way they have been treated. And so changing out there is really important, but we also need to look and see how we talk to ourselves and how we objectify our own bodies with nobody around. Nobody needs to be around. It's how do I look at this body? And most women treat their bodies the way their bodies have been treated. And as we can see with uh, Me Too and Time's Up, women's bodies have been objectified. And so what I found with my own body is that I objectified my own body. And I find that with the people that I work with, that they objectify their bodies. They don't feel that their body is theirs. They don't feel like they have a right to take up space here because that's not the message they got. Yeah, you 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 write about this experience, I think you call it the Red Thread or the Red yes. Thread Project, yes, which kind the of Red touches on project. this. Yes. Can you share a bit about that? Because I think it touches in this in an interesting way. Yeah, it started because my last therapist, who was a great therapist, had me walk across the room. She started at one end, I started the other end. And she said to me, tell me when I get too close. Just tell me to stop. She was in my face before I told her. I didn't even know when to tell her to stop. And I said to her, 
I don't know when to stop. And she said, well, you have energetic boundaries. And I rolled my eyes and I said, look, I'm from New York. New Yorkers don't have energetic boundaries. Only people in California have energetic boundaries. And she said, no, everybody's got them. And the way you know you have them or else you've been taught not to have them is when somebody gets too close, you're uncomfortable. Something in your body says, this doesn't feel right. You're, you know, you're too close and you step away. And I felt like I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know. I was so used to feeling like my body wasn't mine that I didn't know that it was okay to say no and I don't want to. Now, obviously, on some level, I knew. But there, what she said to me was, no, and I don't want to are complete sentences. And being nice is overrated. And that was very important for me to hear. Then gave me a red string and told me to put it around myself, sit in the circle of it, put it around myself, and think of myself and the red string Myself sitting in the center of the circle and the red string was my boundary, sort of my, she would call it energetic boundary. And she did this exercise with me a lot and I felt like I wasn't allowed to have a boundary. I felt like it wasn't okay. My dad pawed at me. You know, I, my dad was a World War II veteran. He sort of loved Frank Sinatra and that whole way of being suave, loved, called women broads, loved pinching women on the ass, thought of me as an extension of him. And that's how it was. That's, he didn't feel like he was doing anything wrong. And so I grew up feeling like I was an extension, not only of him, but that, the men who leered at me at the subway, in the subway, and the men who touched me and grabbed me. And, you know, that was to be expected with being a woman. It was just part of the part of the whole thing of being a woman. It didn't occur to me that, that I could actually feel a sense of power within, not power over, but power within. And that I could take up the space, not only in my body, I could really occupy the space I've been given by having a body and then extend it out to have a sense of presence, a physical sense of presence, an energetic sense of presence. And then when I gave the red string to a couple of hundred women and asked them to put it around themselves, before I could even finish the instructions, half the room were crying saying to me, but my body isn't mine, but I don't know how to do this, but I'll get in trouble if I say no, or I don't want to. And it would have been shocking if I also didn't feel that way. So I saw that this was something we all needed to learn. We all needed to see, first of all, because I think seeing is freeing, that to see that many of us feel like this our bodies aren't ours, that we'll get in trouble if we say no. We'll lose something if we say no. Our bodies somehow are the negotiation tool we have as women. That's how I felt. And so it was a process for me of first seeing. And I felt that way without knowing I felt that way. It's not like I knew I felt like that. So I saw that. And then it was just the process of carrying that red string around around my wrist for a while and imagining myself when talking to difficult people or people I found difficult where I gave myself away instantly. They'd ask me something and I'd say yes before I checked in with my body to see, do I want to or do I not want to? Is this a good idea? Is this not a good idea? Am I willing to sacrifice this relationship to say no? So so I had to really come up with the answers to that. Am I willing to say, no, I don't want to, even with knowing or fearing that I might lose that person? And that's part of this process that I'm talking about, the inner part of Me Too and Time's Up. I feel like time's up on giving ourselves away like that. But the first thing is to realize that we've been doing it on a level that can be disturbing to see. It was to me. But then with the women I work with, they've gotten very good at saying, no, I don't want to, and not being nice. And so that's the micro level to the macro level. 
Yeah, it's like the inside out and the outside yes, in. Exactly. And without both of those having movement simultaneously, you'll ever only solve half the problem. That's right. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah, that's what I've come to see. Hmm. I want to also switch gears just for a moment and then we'll come full circle. Because I'm curious also, we were chatting a little bit about this before we came and sat down. Your, you know, so this recent book is your 10th book. You've been on this journey for a long time, your own personal journey, your journey of helping, it's got to be hundreds of thousands or millions of people at this point. And so the, now, now the creator, the writer in me gets curious about somebody who's been on this path for a long time, somebody who's now 10 books in. Why a 10th book? Well, there had to be a really good reason. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written it. Unless there's something that I don't know that I want to know, that I want to find out, and every book begins with a question for me, I'm not always aware of the question exactly when I'm starting it, but it becomes obvious because writing is the way that I know what I don't know. I want to answer a question, and writing is the way that I do that. And I don't want to keep writing about the same things I've written about before. I really want to explore new territory inside myself. And so until I feel like I've gotten, I've exhausted that, (laughs) I'll probably keep writing. So what was the question for this? The question was, is it possible for me to live with, with some degree of equanimity on a daily basis, to use what seems like, this is where the title of the book comes from, the messiness of my life, the things that I felt like and certainly felt like at the beginning of writing this book that I needed to fix. Is it possible to use those the way I once used food as a doorway, as a portal to my core beliefs about being alive? And is it possible to be in a different kind of relationship with what I consider to be the wounded and damaged parts of myself? Is it possible to live in that open space that you and I talked about of awareness more and more and more of the time? Is it is it possible to embody that? Or do I need to, you know, keep thinking, oh, it's for other people, but it's not for me and waking up with something's wrong and who's to blame. So that was the question I started this book with, or that was the question I realized I was answering about a year or two into writing the book. That's when I realized, and it wasn't until I got to the very end of the book, the very end, after I had submitted it for publication, where I realized that I had been following a process, certain things that you and I talked about, what's not wrong and not complaining and the crazy aunt in the attic and being in my body like that, turning towards, not away from my feelings. I didn't realize I had been following that the entire time. And so I wrote about that in the very last chapter of the book. But I didn't realize I had been doing that till the book was totally done. So I love writing because it is a, a, an endless discovery for me. And besides that, it's a way that I feel like I'm just completely connected to, like my head feels connected to the t- very top of the sky and the stars and my feet feel connected to the middle of the earth. And I just feel like a conduit when I'm writing where I completely disappear or what I know of myself as myself, my identity is gone. So for five or six hours a day, I'm gone. Me, I'm not concerned with the things that my ego self personality is concerned with. It's gorgeous process, except when it's not. Right. And I and it's kind of evil. It. <laughs> and I'm slogging and I resent it and I feel lonely. And why did I ever choose this? And all my friends are going out to pretty restaurants with potted red geraniums and ordering great food. And I'm stuck here with a sentence that I've been working on for four hours. And it feels like hell. <laughs> hell, heaven, hell, heaven. But you know, it's it, uh, it's always worth it. So it's that's how it is. It's always worth it. And with each book, it's worth it. 
And so that's why a 10th book. So as we sit here and you're through this 10th book and you, I'm assuming at least have most of your answer to the questions that started it. Although I have a feeling those questions will continue to linger with you for maybe eternity. Having really examined so much of your life of humanity, having lived and worked with so many different people, living in the world we're living in now, if I bring up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Just exactly what we're talking about, to to not miss my life while it's happening, to be here fully alive, to be sitting here with you, to, you know, to, to, to show up and not get to the end of my life the way so many people have. I've been death obsessed since I've been probably eight years old, realizing, oh my God, everybody's going to die and I'm going to die too. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and feel like I missed it. So what does it take to live it fully, to live a good life? to really live a good life. And that's what I realized it does take, just showing up and not being afraid of what might be uncomfortable and not protecting my little heart back there that doesn't want to get hurt and or else protecting it and seeing the effect of what it's like to protecting it, to, to protect it. And then speaking up because that's the other answer to your question about why a 10th book although this isn't always true for me, because I feel like I want to tell people this. I want people to know this. And so that's part of living a good life too, is not keeping it to myself. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, lovely. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to our wonderful sponsors. If you love the show, please support them. They help make the podcast possible. So check out the links in the show notes. See you next week.